Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Glyn Griffith. He's the author of the BBC and the Development of Anglophone Caribbean Literature, 1943 to 1958, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2016. This book places the radio program Caribbean Voices in context of decolonization and battles over federation. It also makes arguments about how literature traveled and moved across different forms of media and how it was in turn shaped by those mediations. As well, we learn a lot more about people we thought we knew, Henry Swansea, Frank Collymore, V.S. Naipaul, and others. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Glyn. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Good to be here, Alejandra. So you've written this wonderful book about the BBC and the program Caribbean Voices, and I wonder if you could take a little bit of time to tell us how you got started on this project, what got you interested in the in the program? Uh, certainly. Well, it started uh, a long time ago, uh, actually, when I was a, a doctoral student at the Mona campus of the University of the West Indies, Jamaica. And while doing research for my dissertation um, and, and working in the West Indies collection there, um, I just serendipitously came across... Um, the the scripts, the the photocopies of scripts that uh, the BBC made at the end of the program and presented to UWI Mona in the 1960s, I think it was the mid to late 60s. And I started reading uh, the correspondence and and became fascinated with it, Um, but had to put it aside to finish my dissertation and was determined uh, to get back to it. And, And that's what I did. So can you tell us a little bit about how the program worked? One of the things that's really unusual is that the writers and the audience overlapped so much. Um, and it was also a transnational program in the way that uh, things were broadcasted and circulated around. So maybe you could just describe how all of that worked. Uh, sure. Um, just a, 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 a quick piece of the history uh, as you likely know, uh, in the late thirties, when they were the civil, when, when there was a civil unrest, uh, some call it riots, some civil disturbances, uh, throughout many of the territories in the English speaking uh, Caribbean, uh, and the Moyne Commission came and investigated and so on. They, uh, took the decision, you know, England with uh, these islands that were still, uh, colonies took the decision that, um, a number of efforts uh, or certain efforts had to be made to ameliorate the situation. And among those was uh, paying greater attention or attention to education. Uh, and, and it produced, among other things, the University of the, of the West Indies. But in the 1940s, they also took the decision that radio was an important means of reaching people. And uh, the BBC decided that they would uh, use this radio program that had been begun by uh, Jamaican Una Marson um, 
to, to, to foster creative writing in the region, but to also, in a sense, prepare uh, the nurture and prepare and, and, and create um, a black and brown middle class um, to run things when uh, decolonization came. And so this BBC Caribbean Voices program was part of that from the ideological and political perspective of the BBC. It was very much part of that. But the way it worked on the ground was that uh, aspiring writers were invited to send their poems, short stories, even uh, draft chapters of novels to a sub-editor in Jamaica. Uh, his name was Cedric Lindo. And Lindo selected what he thought uh, was worthwhile, and he sent it on to London, where uh, the editor of the radio program, an Anglo-Irishman named Henry Swansea, he made the final determination of what would be broadcast. He selected the material, and uh, it was recorded in the studios, and then broadcast from the BBC studios in London to the English-speaking Caribbean uh, on Sundays. So one of the ways that you describe this program is as follows, I'm quoting you. Here was the Anglophone Caribbean representing itself to itself via the intersecting media of print culture and radio broadcast at a critical historical moment when, at the end of World War II, the region prepared itself for decolonization and national independence. There's a lot there. <laughs> but um, I'm really curious about this phrase, um, representing itself to itself. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, one of the things that started to happen very quickly is that uh, the, 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 there was a, a, a disjunction or a, 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 not, uh, not an agreement then between what the sub-editor, uh, Cedric Lindo, middle-class um, Jamaican, uh, between what he saw as uh, genuine or valuable or worthwhile writing from the English-speaking Caribbean, and what Henry Swansea in London saw as worthwhile. So, so what I mean there by representing itself to itself was that very quickly Swansea favored and privileged writing that used the vernacular and that offered descriptions of particular territory. Uh, but for Swansea, unlike for Lindo, the vernacular on the page was particularly important because Swansea thought that it, it gave a distinctiveness to each particular territory and in his sense uh, was more representative, more truthful, and so fulfilled that uh, investment in, um, in believability of resemblance. Uh, in terms of the literature. So, so by representing itself to itself, uh, I meant, I meant uh, the, the kind of aesthetic choices that Swansea made, and I also mean uh, particularly that listeners in the region, when they heard uh, the various short stories or poems read, uh, but they heard, let us say, a short story written by someone from Trinidad using the Trinidadian vernacular. The Trinidadian listener, as well as listeners from other territories, had the sense via the radio that they were listening to 
a Trinidadian story and a Trinidadian voice. Jamaica and uh, Barbados and and uh, St. Lucia and the other territories. So that is a sense in which I mean representing itself to itself. The, the, the folk back in the region were hearing read on this BBC radio program representations of themselves, their culture, their speech patterns, their way of life that I think struck them as 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 authentic as one could get in 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 a, a fledgling literature right but and one of the fascinating arguments that you make and one of the more political arguments that you make is about this notion of the territory versus the regional nationalisms right and mm-hmm. even as they were hearing these kinds of authentic voices w- one of the arguments that you make is that this ironically div- uh, turned into a source of fragmentation in terms of the failure of federation. And um, maybe you can walk us through that argument because it's really fascinating. Uh, c- certainly. Well, when, when, when we read uh, even now the, the renderings of the challenges of federation and the failure of federation, um, you know, sort of magisterial books by people like John Mordecai and others, um, you, you get, understandably, but you get a focus on the economic and, and the political exigencies. And so we come away thinking, well, that's pretty much the reason and the only reason why the Federation failed. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the way in which Anglophone Caribbean or West Indian literature uh, took shape in that period through the BBC uh, Caribbean Voices, that that was what definitively doomed the Federation. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there's a cultural dimension to the fragmentation that led to the failure that I think has not been sufficiently considered. And when I look at this program, I see uh, that one that has one aspect of this cultural fragmentation that arguably led to that. Um, disintegration. And, and here is what I mean. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the BBC, uh, this program wasn't done, uh, you know, out, out of any sort of largesse <laughs> on the part of the BBC. There was a very clear uh, political slash ideological agenda consequent on the, the disturbances in the region and consequent on, you know, World War Two uh, winding down and Britain realizing that it was um, facing or proceeding through decolonization. And when you look at the, uh, the documentation in the BBC written archives that, that I checked, uh, the, the BBC directorate clearly indicated that BBC broadcasts, all of them, BBC broadcasts to the Anglophone Caribbean, uh, were supposed to promote the interests of Federation and were supposed to promote Federation. So even for Henry Swansea and his literary program, that um, was supposed to be the agenda. And... Part of my argument that I make in the book is that with Swansea privileging individual territorial vernaculars and insisting, because he often did this when you look at, at, at his admonitions to writers and so on, insisted on descriptions even of flora and fauna in, in the literature that was reflective of individual territories, right? Um, so, so, so part of what occurred 
was that, and remember, because this was a radio program, even though it was a literary radio program, anyone within earshot of the radio uh, would have heard the broadcast. Um, and, and, and because it was stories about uh, the people themselves, written by themselves, uh, it would, it's conceivable, it's reasonable that it would have attracted an audience beyond the aspiring writer and beyond the literate, the literary, and the learned. Um, and so part of what I argue is that his focusing on and emphasizing and privileging the territorial, the vernacular, uh, the descriptions, as I said, that were specific to territories, very quickly emphasized the literature that was uh, that was representative of what I call in the book territorial nationalism. Um, and the fact that, though this was a cultural program and a literary program, the fact that the cultural aspect and his doing work and shaping a writing that ran counter to that BBC ideal, the fact of it... Uh, being a problem, it was clearly shown uh, when one realizes that he ran afoul of his BBC superiors, right? So, mm -hmm. so as I said, uh, when you look at the documentation, the BBC was very clear that broadcast to the Caribbean, to the English-speaking Caribbean, including this literary radio program, was supposed to, to privilege uh, Federation. Mm -hmm. And Swansea uh, worked against that. There is also... Uh, there, there are also several moments in the program where uh, one of the the writers, uh, an Englishman that Swansea uh, often relied on on the program, uh, Arthur Calder Marshall is his name. Uh, you you get some broadcasts initially where Calder Marshall is giving you know like a thirty minute broadcast talking about what kind of writing he's looking for to come out. Uh, come out of the Caribbean. And he's focusing on uh, the writing of the various territories coalescing into a school of writing. And there, there are points at which in, in his discussing uh, the, the, the shape of the literature that he's expecting to see, he's actually saying uh, that he doesn't want to see a literature that is St. Lucian or Jamaican or Barbadian. He's looking for a Caribbean or a West Indian literature in that regional sense. So he's, in, in effect, doing what the British uh, uh, BBC administration is expecting the program to do. He's promoting federation through this cultural practice of, of, of uh, literature. Swansea, very quickly, he does one broadcast like that, and Swansea takes him off uh, those kinds of uh, critical broadcast. He never does a single one after that broadcast. I don't think that's coincidental. So Swansea knew what he was doing, and he understood that what he was doing ran counter ideologically to what his BBC superiors expected his program to do. It's a very interesting, as you say, kind of a cultural uh, argument for Federation and what happened to it, which is quite unusual in the literature, I think. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, actually, is is that one of the points you make really clearly in the book is about the role of the peasant in literature and the way that writers took up the peasantry in this that subject. Um, and maybe you could talk just a little bit about why the peasant was so central to the work of those people who's who who were being read on the program. 
Yes, certainly. Uh, and, and, and I agree with you that it's, a, I, I think, an interesting phenomenon. Even in the present, there are still you will still hear uh, critics of the literature of the region, uh, West Indian or Anglophone Caribbean writers and critics. There's still this wrestling over where is the middle-class writer? Why uh, didn't middle-class writing, or middle-class in the sense of, because obviously uh, the, the, the literary endeavor is, is by its very nature a middle-class endeavor. So all these writers were uh, at, at one level or another, middle class, certainly in terms of education, values, and so on. Um, and, and so we still have in the present moment this sense of why uh, did West Indian writers and why does, did West Indian literature not uh, focus on the middle class experience as much as it did uh, on the peasant and the urban, the urban poor? And part of what I argue is that, in, in the book, is that here you have these black and brown middle-class writers. And in one sense, it might seem uh, logical, given their own class position and, and class values, that even if you know, they, they, they presented literature that focused on the peasant and the urban poor, you, know, you think of somebody like uh, Charles Dickens or Thomas Hardy, so mm-hmm. it's not impossible or, or not done. But by the same token, if you have in the 19th century a British writer, the Charlotte Brontes and the Jane Austens, who are middle class and, and, and focusing on middle class characters, with the exception of a few people at that period, like, say, John Hearn, for example, you don't have these writers use focusing on middle class characters. It's, it's primarily uh, working class, urban poor, and the peasant. And part of what I argue there is that I think the reason is uh, the, the, the peasant represented for these black and brown middle class writers more than simply a character. What the black and brown middle class uh, West Indian of that period, the 40s, 50s, and maybe even the early 60s, had in common with the urban poor and, uh, and, and, and the, 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 the peasantry uh, was a sense and, and an experience of dispossession consequent on colonialism. And colonialism, by its very nature, uh, speaks of dispossession. So even if their lives, their material lives were marginally better than the peasant or the urban poor, they still had this profound sense of dispossession, of not belonging, or uh, or, or being alienated from from their their the, the the land the very land of their birth where they should uh, have belonged. Uh, there was a sense of unbelonging, and and so and so that focus on the peasantry. Uh, who was in many instances working on the land and close to the land, but the land was not theirs. You know, um, certainly in a place like Barbados, you have some some exceptions to that in a place like Jamaica, uh, you know, where you have the small uh, landholders uh, uh, after emancipation and so on. But in a place like Barbados, um, you have this landlessness, um, for, for, for a long period, moving right into um, decolonization and independence. So there's a way in which then, as I said, 
what the middle class writer and aspiring writer has in common with the urban poor in the region and the peasant uh, is this experience of dispossession and in a number of territories and in a number of cases because of the politics, also this experience of landlessness. So in that sense, the peasant becomes not simply a character, but actually a figure or a motif emblematic of dispossession. And so by even by simply making the peasant the center of your novel or your short story, uh, that you, the use of that character is also simultaneously, I argue, in the in the BBC Caribbean Voices book, um, an, an act that participates in in a, 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 an anti-colonial uh, critique. Yeah, and there's a really interesting way in which that argument folds into the argument about territoriality as well, and in, in the connection to the land. I, I really enjoyed thinking about. It. It that way. Um, I have a question about methodology. So you have a chapter on correspondence and letters, which is really, um, really interesting. And it makes really clear one of the arguments that runs through the book, and that's about the ways that different forms of media support one another. So in a sense, the book is not just about this radio broadcast, but it's about all of the um, the written material that supports the broadcasts and the letters that go back and forth and the relationships that form because of those networks of both of different kinds of media. Um, and so I guess my question is, did you find any disjunctures among those different forms of media or did they, they, they feed into each other um, sort of seamlessly as you so nicely describe or were there kind of gaps and, and silences as well? Well, I, I, I think there were certainly there was a network, and and in in my estimation and my reading of of the material, there was more uh, intersection and consonance between or among the, the different media. If you think of uh, letter writing as as one medium, um, in, intersecting with the radio broadcast, and I, and I will give you uh, one quick example. Henry Swansea, the editor in London, you know, would, would uh, let's say this week uh, he has a number of poems broadcast. And uh, let us say some of those poems are by, you know, this young aspiring poet uh, named Derek Walcott in St. Lucia. And so Walcott sends up some poems. Swansea thinks they're wonderful. They're broadcast this week. Uh, Walcott is in St. Lucia and he's listening and he hears them. Uh, perhaps the following week's broadcast, uh, Henry Swansea then brings um, a critic into the studio to offer a critical analysis of the Walcott poems that were read in the previous week. Walcott also hears that, let us say. And because he hears it on the radio and it's sort of ephemeral, he's listening, uh, but then the voice is gone, the program has ended. You find Walcott, and he's not unusual, Walcott and many other aspiring writers writing to, to Henry Swansea. Uh, they also, because another individual who is significant and, and a key in, in this sort of circuit, is uh, Frank Cullimore, the editor of BIM magazine in Barbados. So you have these young aspiring writers writing to Cullimore or writing directly to Swansea and saying, I heard 
this uh, critique of some of my poems or my short story or whatever by by this critic, um, is it possible for you to to send me in the post uh, the script of that broadcast? Because though I made notes as I was listening, uh, obviously I couldn't catch everything, and I would like to read the criticism. So 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 part of what. I understood to be going on there and that I therefore argue in the book is that there's this intersection of media and that there's this uh, circuit of support. Part of it clearly is the electronic um, medium of radio broadcast, but another important part of it is this business of, of letter writing. And it, it's hard for us, I think, in this day and age to understand how uh, Furiously, feverishly, these people wrote letters. But when you look at the dates, you know you'll see. So Swansea writes this this uh, aspiring writer, uh, and the letter is dated, uh, say, the first week of February. And then you go through the correspondence, and by the third, the beginning of the third week in February, uh, Swansea has received a response to that letter, and. And so they're, 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 they're writing these letters all the time. And part of what I argue in the book is that what also happens as a result is that there is a kind of writing workshop going on that is produced out of these intersecting media and supportive, mutually supportive media of letter writing and radio broadcast um, that is producing... Uh, this, this virtual community. And so in some ways, I say the medium of letter writing at that historical moment functions perhaps the way uh, a virtual community functions in, in, in our conjuncture with things like uh, the personal computer and um, email or, you know, other, um, other forms of social media. So letter writing was very much critical to that. And the final point I'll make about, about that uh, is that you see the understanding that all of these writers and the editors, uh, the Swansea in London and, um, and, and Frank Colomar in Barbados, you, you, you see a clear understanding from them that they understand its importance because when somebody doesn't write regularly and one of the people that they quarrel with Frank Colomer is always quarreling, for example, with Derek Walker. He says, you know, Walker needs to understand that he needs to write. You'll, you'll send this guy a, a letter and he takes too long to respond. <laughs> and uh, Swansea said, so, so this was a serious thing to them. And, and they would sort of upbraid Walker at, at points in another letter. So clearly they understood uh, the importance of letter writing and that it was helping to produce this network. And this, what I call this virtual community of, of writers and critics and editors. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating also to think about the ways that the media tr translate from one another. So they're not just supporting each other, but sometimes literally, you know, the broadcasts get turned into letters, which then get sent off. And then um, it's really, really fascinating. Yes. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about this, um, the friendship between Swansea and Collymore, because that was a really uh, lovely part of the book. Um, and I guess you've already talked a little bit about who Collymore was, but um, maybe just uh, let's hear a little bit more about this epistolary relationship, because they met apparently just once. 
Uh, but the correspondence went on for, for many years, right? Yes. Uh, yes, there was a friendship. Uh, again, another thing I think we've lost with the invention of, of the computer and the immediacy of, of that ele- electronics has allowed us in this day and age. Um, but as we know, or if we think of it, pen pals uh, was was an important thing, you know, in, in the age of letter writing. Um, and so they, as you said uh, correctly, they fostered and maintained a friendship uh, through letter writing. They met only once. Swansea uh, was a teacher at uh, Combermere School in, in, in Barbados. He was a civil servant and and teachers and civil servants, you know, when, when these territories were still colonies, would get long leave, and long leave took you to England, just like if you were an English expat working somewhere. And, um, but but I, I think on the, on the one occasion, he, he uh, had a British Council uh, fellowship, I think it was, and he was in London, um, and he met Swansea uh, just once. Swansea, too, only traveled to the Caribbean once, and that was... Uh, to Jamaica. And uh, so they met only once, but when you look at the correspondence, uh, they were, were, were true and deep friends. It began because of uh, Swansea's work with the radio program and Frank Cullimer's work with BIM. Um, but you see correspondence as well where when, when important things uh, occur in their respective lives. They're they're um, telling each other about it. Uh, they're conferring with each other not only on the work, but also on on you know activities, personal choices, decisions, and so on. So they were, um, in every sense of the word, I I think and understood it from from my research. They were uh, true friends. Um, but in terms of the work. There was also support between uh, the BBC Caribbean Voices, the radio program, and Frank Colomer's work with the uh, magazine or or literary journal BIM, because uh, there were times when uh, Swansea would write uh, Frank Colomer and say, for example, that the, the material he had for a program uh, the good material that he thought was worthy of broadcast wasn't sufficient uh, for a good for a full program or for a program for the next two or three weeks. And he would ask Colmore whether there was any material he had um, that was good, but that he hadn't uh, yet used for BIM. Uh, whether he would send it for use on um, on Caribbean Voices. Similarly, sometimes you would see correspondence where. Uh, Frank Cullimore is asking Swansea if he has any material that he might send to help uh, Cullimore flesh out uh, an issue of BIM. In addition, they also assist each other with um, with reviews, although uh, there's much more of that. You see where uh, Swansea is assisting um, Cullimore than the other way around, because there are occasions where Cullimore produces an issue of BIM and there's little response or the response is negative in the newspapers, you know, the Barbados Advocate, uh, written by people who absolutely know nothing about literature or, or who think that, <laughs> as one of the 
uh, writer says that, that that literature was interred with Alfred Lord Tennyson and therefore anything else after that is a waste of time. And so you would have um, Cullermore asking Swansea if he could kind of talk up the latest issue of BIM on a BBC Caribbean Voices program. Mm. Uh, and because the radio program was regional, uh, you would you would sometimes then read of uh, Cullimore indicating that subscriptions to BIM went up mm-hmm. a few weeks after a broadcast and so on. So so there's a way in which the two programs uh, or the two venues or media for literature are mutually supportive. So the early version of a retweet, I guess that's what, what yes. that would be. <laughs> <laughs> I like- Yes. Um, so the the book closes with a chapter on the post Swansea Caribbean voices under a very young V.S. Nepal, uh, and I'm wondering if you were surprised by the shift in approach and the intentions of the program that he took. I think to some degree, yes. Um, you know, reading Walcott over the years and 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 sort of perceiving him, I guess, for want of a better term, politically, as I do. I expected a kind of high-handedness, um, you know, and, 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 and a lot of not just admonition, but maybe dismissiveness mm. of writers that, as an editor, he thought were weak and so on, compared to, to Swansea. Uh, because, yes, Swansea was rigorous and all of that, but, but he, he could also, he not could, he also was nurturing when he saw talent. So while I, I went to the, to the Walcott and Mittelholzer years, that they, they edited it for the last four years, um, Naipaul uh, for two, uh, from 54 to 56, and then Mittelholzer the last two years from 56 to 58, I admit that I was surprised uh, at, at, at how Naipaul and then Mittelholzer operated. Where Swansea kept looking um, for, for uh, what he referred to on some occasions as, as the fine goal, uh, the, the goal filigree to be discovered, where Swansea, even as the literature started to develop itself and people like Lamming and Naipaul uh, were, were, were beginning to be published, Lamming, Selvon, and others, uh, Swansea still had this sense that this was a program that uh, still had the opportunity and therefore the responsibility to find yet undiscovered writers and to nurture them. By the time Naipaul and Mittelholzer uh, take over, what you find is not only a clear sense that they believe that there are no, there, there are no really, there's really no new, uh, there are no new writers in the region to be discovered. But a very, what I interpreted, what I felt as, as an arrogance, a hubris. Um, you see them on programs, uh, they, they supposedly, uh, they thought this is what they were, they were doing. They continued the kind of criticism programs that Swansea had started. Um, they continued not so much the critic, critic circle as he, as he, Swansea did, but something akin to that. But what you find is... Um, that they are insulting uh, writers and that they're making statements on these critical programs such as writing cannot be thought, writing cannot be taught. You either have it or you do not. 
Um, and, and then uh, somebody like Mitchell Holzer would take the opportunity to talk about his talent. And uh, he would bring uh, the editor, his book editor, or his publisher, or the editor of his publishing house, onto the program. And so it became very incestuous. Uh, they would review each other's books. So their approach in the last four years of the program was to turn what Swansea fashioned. And, and indeed, uh, and it's important to, to keep her name in here as well, Una Marson before him, what they both fashioned, though hers was very fledgling and he really honed it as a fully literary program, but the foundation was Una Marson. What they both fashioned was an outward-looking program to nurture writers and to hone skills and then to seek to get uh, good writers, publishers. Um, what you see with uh, Naipaul and Middle Holzer is that rather than an outward-looking program, it turns inward and it becomes incestuous. And so they're using programs to simply review each other's books and praise each other and pat each other on the back in the studio. Not surprising that, surprisingly, that the, the, um, the, the interest in the program falls off. And you have uh, occasions where Naipaul in a broadcast is saying uh, to listeners, we're not getting uh, any letters from you there in the Caribbean uh, as we used to. Um, have you lost interest? <laughs> so he, he, must, he must know, but he still continues to do what he did with the program. And so not unsurprisingly, in 1958, the BBC brings it to an end. And, and I think uh, people that I've seen write about the program before um, I did in the book, um, you know, in, in, in essays and, and journal articles. I think the, the general understanding was, um, well, the program had served its purpose. You have a number of published writers by 1958, Middle Holzer, uh, Selvon, um, Lab, George Lamming and others. And so the sense is that, well, it has served its purpose uh, and it's now superfluous. We can get rid of it. I conclude the book by saying uh, that I disagree that there were still more writers to be discovered and arguably had the program continued in the vein uh, in which uh, Swansea operated, uh, it might well have lasted beyond uh, 1958. Hmm. So at the end, you also reflect on some of the other legacies. Uh, and one that I would like to pick up on um, is the question of gender. So you acknowledge that there weren't very many women on the program and that's clear, pretty clear. But I, I wonder about a different aspect of gender. I wonder about masculinity. And I wonder if there's a particular kind of masculinity that's being cultivated through this program, through the idea of the Caribbean writer and the reader. And obviously, there, there are different stages with Unimarsen and, and Swansea and then Nepal and Middleholzer. But, but I wonder if there is a, a certain kind of masculinity that's, that's, that's being generated at, at, over the course of these years? Yes, I, I think uh, cer certainly so. So, so, there, so there is, by the, I think, by the very act of these, and, and it was, yes, predominantly men, taking up writing uh, not as a hobby, not as, amateur, not as an amateur um, practice, but as a profession, um, I, I think you see 
a fairly clear, clearly articulated sense uh, and, and structuring of um, masculinities around uh, the writer and, 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 and uh, the, the, the male writer and the male writer writing as a, as a masculine or masculinist profession. To, to some extent, I think some of that uh, you see on, on, on some of the broadcasts, we, it, it, in terms of it's simultaneously a class distinction, you know, where you have a you have a middle class, a clearly middle class, um, omniscient narrator, you know, observing a uh, working class or, or peasantry and so on. On other occasions, where you have, I'm thinking now of somebody like Roger Mace uh, in 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 his his three novels, um, The Hills Were Joyful Together, Brother Man, and and Black Lightning where you don't have that class difference, distinction, or chasm between the omniscient narrator or, or, or the, the I narrator, if it's an I, a first-person narrator, and the, the peasant or working-class characters. But, but even in those cases, I think what you have is constructions of masculinity in the text that, in, in one way or another are facilitating the representation of the middle class male writer as a particular kind of man and as possessing a particular kind of um, masculinity. Just a quick example, though, though, though uh, his fiction was not broadcast on the program. I think uh, perhaps once um, he participated um, in terms of a critical broadcast or or, or offered a critical broadcast that was read. I'm thinking of somebody like CLR. uh, I'm thinking uh, specifically here of CLR James. But when I think of his novel, Minty Alley, uh, you, you have that middle-class writer, Haynes, who has, you know, sort of fallen on hard times and has to move into a barrack yard and has this sort of voyeuristic view of the Trinidadian working class living in the barrack yard. And you have these working-class male characters um, who demonstrate their masculinity by a certain kind of sexual prowess and dominance of, of the women uh, in, their, in their yard or in the community and so on. That's one kind of masculinity. But I think you see that James is at pains in that novel to also, through Haynes, construct an alternative kind of masculinity that even if it takes a while for... Uh, the young woman, the character Maisie, I think her name is in that novel, to, to, to realize and acknowledge that this too is masculinity in terms of Haynes, uh, she comes to such an understanding. The women, Mrs. Rouse, uh, begins to trust, comes to that. So, so, so yes, I think there's a, you also see in that period and the burgeoning of the literature through particularly the novel form, I think strategies that work to construct the middle class Anglophone, Caribbean, uh, black and brown male as possessing a particular kind of masculinity that is different from perhaps a stereotypical um, machismo masculinity, but that is no less masculine, though it is different.
So we've taken up a lot of your time, and uh, I'd like to wrap up just by talking about Swansea a little bit more. I know that you're now tracing him as he moved on to Ghana after leaving Caribbean Voices. And um, would you talk a little bit about his your thoughts as to his lasting relevance to the worlds of literature and, and broadcasting? Uh, uh, certainly. Well, as you mentioned, um, after he, he was seconded, uh, the, the British use that term, and, 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 and we did in the old world, uh, English-speaking Caribbean as well. Um, so he was seconded in uh, 1954 uh, to Accra, Ghana, to start... Um, to basically construct from the ground up there a similar literary radio program as um, he as he did with the BBC Caribbean Voices, and that program was called the Singing Net. Um, of course, there were challenges there that he didn't have with Caribbean Voices um, because he he was dealing with a community where English uh, was a second language or a third language. Um, and Twi and other languages were the first languages. And so all of that literature that he um, encouraged, just as he did with the BBC Caribbean Voices, was essentially uh, literature in translation because they were required to write in English. Um, and that program, uh, it actually ran through, I think it was 1959. So it went even a year beyond Ghanaian independence. Uh, and though it might be a small detail, I think that fact um, undermines the notion that something like BBC Caribbean Voices um, um, outlived its, its usefulness and, and certainly had to come to an end as uh, as national independence in the various territories uh, was, you know, a few years on the horizon. Um, because if that were so, how do you justify this uh, BBC program in Accra? existing <clears throat> a full year after Ghanaian independence. Um, but to focus specifically on Swansea, uh, the person and his contribution, I think one of the things I, I hope I achieved with this book is to show readers his fundamental contribution to Anglophone Caribbean literature. Uh, part of the reason I'm doing the research now in Ghana to, is to follow him because I've developed this interest in, in his work um, and to see what, what he did in the development of Ghanaian literature in English and if it was as, as, as full and, and extensive as in the Anglophone Caribbean. But one of the things I would say about Swansea uh, is that he, I think he needs to be uh, much more understood and acknowledged as uh, foundational in the development of Anglophone Caribbean literature. Uh, he has become a lot more so than in the past. Uh, writers, critics like uh, Philip Nanton, uh, for example, and others have done that work as well. But I still think that he is not sufficiently recognized. One of the things I'm hoping to agitate for and use the book as evidence, uh, well, two things actually. One is that I think Frank Cullimore, even though he too is much more acknowledged now than, than he used to be, there's certainly Frank Cullimore Hall in his name in Barbados, and uh, people who know the literature know Bim. But Frank Cullimore some years ago, I think in the 60s, was, was awarded uh, an honorary MA by the University of the West Indies. And if you look at the honorary degrees, 
His is the only honorary MA ever given. Uh, I think that uh, the University of the West Indies uh, needs to look back at that and award uh, Frank Cullimore an honorary doctorate posthumously. And I want to uh, make representations to the vice chancellor of the University of the West Indies, uh, Professor um, Sir Hilary Beckles, that the University of the West Indies seriously consider awarding uh, Henry Swansea an honorary doctorate posthumously. When you look at what that man has contributed to the development of the literature of the English-speaking Caribbean, uh, I don't see any good reason uh, why an honorary doctorate posthumously for Henry Swansea for his contribution to literature in the English-speaking Caribbean, how anyone who knows the facts could suggest that that is not justified. Well, it sounds like we'll be hearing more from you then. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Alejandra. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. All best. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you can join me next time.